2020 has been one of those years, hasn't it? One that will go down in the history books. We're still in the middle of a pandemic that's killed over a million people worldwide. And let's not forget the problems that were already there before 2020 started. Climate change, inequality, and increasingly fractious international politics. But could this be the year we reset? I'm James Whitmore, and you're listening to Econ 19, a podcast from the University of Melbourne that takes you inside the economics of the coronavirus pandemic. In this episode, I'm talking with Professor Ross Garneau. Rosk is a professor of economics at the University of Melbourne, and he spent his life working on international economics and development. This year, he's been busy developing his plan for Australia's recovery from the pandemic, reset, restoring Australia after the pandemic recession. We caught Ross on the road, so please excuse any background noise. So Ross, to start with, you've been working on this lecture series and you're developing a book, and I just wanted to know... What was the moment when you thought, you know, this is this is a really big event. I need to do something big around this. Pretty clear in March. Uh, that was before Australia had more than a few cases of COVID. But it was pretty clear there was going to have a big in- economic impact on us simply because of the impact it was already having on Northeast Asian countries. Australia's biggest export markets, biggest trading partners are China, Japan, Korea. These were all affected early by the by the virus, and uh, uh, it was very clear by uh, by March that they were in recession, and that alone was going to have a very big impact on us, a huge effect. Uh, and uh, by then, by March, it, it was starting to spread into Europe, so it was going to have a big effect there. But there were, at that early stage, not so many signs in the Americas. Uh, that came later. It was clear in the middle of March that this was going to be a very big economic episode. I I recall a conversation I had with the Treasurer in his Canberra office on the 5th of March in uh, which which he said he wanted to do everything he could to avoid recession. And I remember saying, well, that's, that's a good objective, but I think that's already impossible from what has happened to our trading partners. It could get worse, but it's going to be bad from that alone. And of course, we did enter a recession. And I'm curious to know, how does it compare to previous recessions? Well, it came upon us more suddenly. I put up a chart in the lectures comparing the downward spiral in world trade, total volume of world trade in the Great Depression of 1929 and the 30s, and then the global financial crisis and and then this one. In the first few months, you had a bigger contraction of world trade within a few months than you had in either of those earlier episodes. That didn't keep going like that. Uh, After seven or eight months, uh, the the global financial crisis of 2008 uh, had caught up, but it was a very sharp, sudden effect. So we compared in in that way. This one's associated with proportionately uh, bigger decline in international transactions, partly because a lot of the impact was... uh, on, on movement of people. There were very big restrictions on movement of people to, to all countries very early on, uh, which really uh, brought to a halt a lot of important services trade, for example, uh, tourism and education, which are very important for us, and uh, tourism in particular important for a lot of other countries as well. That, that very large element of world trade just about stopped. And then uh, recession caused a contraction in demand everywhere, and so uh, you had a big uh, fall in, in most commodity prices, not quite all, but most, uh, and a particularly big one in fossil energy, uh, oil, coal and gas, which uh, 
are important exports to, of, of Australia. So through the uh, international trade impact, it was very big, very sudden. Uh, in effect, on uh, total output, economic activity, first half of this year saw the biggest decline in such a short period that the world economy has ever seen. There was a particularly strong stimulatory response from governments, from uh, fiscal policy, budgets, cutting taxes and increasing government expenditure. A lot of the expenditure being uh, social security payments for people suddenly unemployed and also a very rapid monetary expansion in every country. But the balance between fiscal expansion, what governments did through budgets and monetary expansion, what reserve banks did through reducing interest rates and expanding the money supply, the balance was different this time, partly because interest rates were already so low in most countries, all countries. Uh, so that it wasn't quite as easy as it was uh, in the, the global financial crisis a dozen years ago to reduce them further. But much more rapid and large fiscal expansion this time. Uh, Australia's uh, uh, increase in expenditure was huge uh, amongst the larger, but uh, it was very large in, in all developed countries, very large in almost all countries that uh, had the f fiscal capacity to support big increases in expenditure. Uh, that has been important in stabilising economies. Uh, after that very sharp force, first half fall, at very least, uh, there was a quite sharp reduction in the rate of fall everywhere. And in some countries, beginnings of uh, return to growth, the most important economy in which that was the case was China, which returned to quite strong growth in the September quarter. So sharper reduction in economic activity, and uh, partly because there was a very strong stimulatory response from governments, much stronger than the Great Depression and uh, stronger than the global financial crisis, uh, an earlier stabilisation. Not a complete stabilisation, still things going down in a lot of countries, including important ones in Europe and America. But certainly that very sharp reduction of activity in the first half of the year has stopped. It's interesting you're talking about what governments have been spending. And obviously in Australia, we have this conversation around how much we can spend. Do we need a balanced budget? Uh, the budget deficit now is enormous and it's going to be enormous for several years at least. Is this a problem? Well, it's a problem, but one that we have to have. It's absolutely necessary to do that or we won't restore growth in the economy or we won't even stop things going down. Uh, so we have to do it. It would be a mistake not to do it. It would be a mistake to do less of it. It would be a, a mistake to stop doing it too early. It would be a mistake to stop doing it until we've got genuine full employment, uh, which is a lot lower unemployment than we had uh, in the period before the crisis. But uh, that's not to say that it's costless. Do we have to repay it or do future generations have to repay it? Well, that, that depends on economic circumstances in future. Uh, if to get to full employment, we find that we need to uh, continue to have budget deficits, then, uh, then it, it may be good economic policy not to repay that debt for a very long time. On the other hand, if we find that as we come towards full employment, uh, people's tendency to uh, invest is uh, as great or greater than their tendency to save in the private sector, uh, then we will have to haul back that debt and the Reserve Bank will have to uh, sell into the uh, private sector the securities that it accumulated to finance government debt uh, during this period of expansion. So uh, how much of a challenge it is uh, for uh, the future depends a bit on economic conditions that are hard to predict in the future, but uh, there, there is a cost 
and uh, it would be best to get back to full employment as quickly as possible so that we can uh, slow the growth of debt as early as possible. So your lecture series and your book are called Reset. Why is this the moment to change the way we do things? I, I spent one of the lectures, and it will be one of the chapters in the book, explaining that we couldn't go back to what we had immediately before the pandemic, but we wouldn't want to go back there even if we could. The years between the resources boom and the onset of the pandemic early this year was a pretty bad period for uh, economic conditions in Australia, a pretty bad period for the standard of living of of ordinary Australians. Uh, Per capita output in that uh, eight years, seven seven years or so, uh, uh, grew more slowly in Australia than in other developed countries. Uh, It grew significantly more slowly output per person in Australia than in the average of developed countries, much more slowly in the United States more slowly even than in Japan. And we're used to thinking of Japan as a poorly performing economy. But uh, our output per person and our productivity uh, grew more slowly than that in Japan. That was reflected in stagnant living uh, conditions, even worse for uh, ordinary people, ordinary workers, than than that stagnation suggests because there was a period of wide distribution of wealth and income so that uh, people in the median of the income distribution and below, uh, many of them didn't quite maintain living standards. It's quite unusual in the mo- in modern economic development to have such a period of income stagnation. So there are reasons why we don't want to go back there even if we could. But we can't go back there anyway because uh, a number of things will be harder. So you've mentioned productivity, which is something that economists always talk about it. Can you just tell us what is it and why is it so important to economies? Well, uh, Paul Krugman, Nobel laureate amongst economists, who puts a lot of things in an engaging way, writes a very interesting column for the New York Times. Uh, uh, He once said that uh, in the long run, productivity isn't everything, but it's almost everything. Productivity is uh, how much output you get from a given quantity of uh, capital and labour. If you can produce more output with the same amount of capital and labour, then uh, you've got much more uh, income to distribute across the community. It's different from producing more output by working harder, which may or may not make you better off overall. It's different from uh, producing more output by putting more capital into it because you've got to divert resources from consumption or from doing something else to uh, make it available as capital expenditure. So if you like, it's a, it's another form of uh, free lunch. And over the long term, it's the main term of living standards. Countries with high average productivity uh, are likely to have high average standards of living. Countries with uh, low productivity are going to be uh, countries with relatively poor populations. So these uh, this unequal impact on different groups of people, to what extent do they reflect inequities that are already present in Australia's economy? I think to a considerable extent. People who had established wealth have not been much affected by this. They had more comfortable homes from which to keep working on. They had reserves of wealth, more likely to have permanent incomes if they were still in employment, um, jobs that they could keep getting paid for even though uh, offices closed. Uh, or if, if they were living off uh, asset income, 
That, that was not severely disrupted. Uh, there was a, an early fall in the share, share market. That's mostly been recovered, early fall in housing prices, but that's stabilised. And, and those falls were a tiny proportion of the huge increases in wealth that accumulated during the period of falling interest rates from the turn of the century until the eve of the pandemic recession. But people who had some assets uh, at the beginning of that uh, long period of falling interest rates, uh, if they hadn't uh, consumed them, uh, unusually uh, went from being modestly wealthy to very wealthy over that period or from being very wealthy to fabulously wealthy. Uh, so uh, uh, the different experiences of different parts of the community were, uh, were extreme. What are some of the ways that we can improve the equity in Australia's economy? In the lectures and in the book, I suggest two major reforms, so one in corporate tax and one in integration of the personal and social security system. On the former, it's not only a question of equity, it's a question of efficiency. We'll get better economic performance if we do it. But I suggest we move from the standard corporate income tax to uh, uh, a tax on cash flow, uh, which has the effect of, of shifting the incidence of corporate taxation away from those who are investing and innovating and places a higher burden on those who are not doing any of those things are just earning rents from uh, from uh, historical uh, uh, assets. And in the, the uh, personal income tax and uh, social security area, uh, I suggest that now is a good time to go to uh, what is sometimes called a uh, basic income guarantee for an earlier generation of economists, it was more commonly called a negative income tax, where uh, nearly all Australians, all except those of uh, well above average means, receive a basic payment into their bank account every fortnight, whether employed or not. And they keep getting that uh, no matter uh, whether or not they're earning income. Uh, and uh, I, I think we would find that uh, a very reassuring source of income security, favourable to incentives for labour Force participation, especially for people on low incomes. At present, the combination of withdrawal of Social Security, if you start to earn more than rather modest amount of income and uh, income tax, the combination of those two things gives you a very high effective tax on extra income that you earn. Uh, you just have a steady, moderate level of taxation from the first uh, dollar of income. Uh, you'd effectively keep your basic income and add to that uh, what you earned, less so moderate income tax rate, I think that would be a comprehensive way to uh, improve income security. Remove the stigma of unemployment benefits and that's there at the moment. Remove unhelpful, wasteful uh, requirements of uh, proof that you're, you're searching for enough jobs even when there's no jobs there. Uh, and increase incentives for labour force participation and therefore uh, strengthen the economy as we recover from this pandemic recession. So they're the two reforms I put uh, a lot of emphasis on. Recently, uh, with the Melbourne Economic Forum, uh, some of my colleagues uh, here and uh, colleagues at, the, at Victoria University gave other suggestions. Peter Dawkins, uh, once the, the uh, director of the the Melbourne Institute, now Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University, uh, put a strong case that uh, amongst our recovery policies should be a very strong emphasis on education, including uh, early early age education, preschool education uh, and training. That should be a very important part of the big emphasis on uh, economic expansion in, in, in the uh, post-pandemic period. I think he's got a good point there. Uh, so... Uh, do those three things and uh, we'd have made a good start.
It's worth mentioning here that we spoke to Ross directly before the US election, so his suggestions here are based on what he thought would happen. And something else that's on your pandemic recovery wish list is something that you've been working on for a very long time since you did the climate change reports for the the government under Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard is making low carbon energy a focus of the recovery. Why should this be central to our recovery from the pandemic? Well, that's a bit of good luck, really. Wasn't anything there in nature that said that this would be helpful at this time. There was no economic law that said that uh, making the adjustments we have to make to get the emissions out of our economy for climate change reasons was going to be helpful to the economy. But the way things turn out, it could A, be very helpful, and B, be the only thing that uh, is helpful enough. I told the, the story of the change in uh, the economic role of climate change mitigation in my book, Superpower, which came out from uh, another series of lectures I gave this time a year before in 2019. And uh, in that book, I compared the situation facing us with climate change now with that which had existed when I did my first report. My first report was commissioned by all the governments of Australia. Initially, the six state governments, the two territories and the Commonwealth joined it. So all the sovereign governments of the Federation uh, were were part of the exercise. And uh, I gave that report to the Prime Minister and the Premiers, the Chief Ministers, uh, in September 2008, after a year and a few months, a year and a half of very careful work. And one of the things that I did was, uh, with a lot of excellent help from very good uh, government and, and university economic modelers, was to do a very detailed exercise on, on how the Australian economy would evolve through the rest of this century, with and without Australia playing its full part in a global climate change mitigation. It turned out that the costs of the world failing on climate change were very much greater than the costs of playing our part in a global effort to stop climate change or to hold it at reasonable levels or moderate levels. Nevertheless, the early costs were considerable. And for a couple of decades, my modelling showed that incomes growth would not be as strong as it otherwise would be. And there was a measurable and significant sacrifice of incomes to play a full part in a global financial effort. Well, what's changed since that work? Well, one thing's changed rather radically, and that is that, as it's turned out, the costs of the zero emissions technologies in electricity, uh, the technologies that give you uh, solar power and wind power, uh, but in industry, the costs of uh, electrification of transport using zero emissions uh, electricity, also pathways to zero emissions industry, the costs have turned out to be very much lower than I anticipated in my modelling a dozen years ago. I tried to uh, take into account uh, all the work that was going on to reduce the costs of the zero emissions technologies. My team and I uh, consulted closely with people working on the pure research at universities, but also applied research and technology, also making uh, uh, equipment and using it not only in Australia, but in China, Japan, Korea, United States, um, Britain. Germany. My assumptions about the likely rate of reduction of costs of zero emissions technologies um, uh, were based on all of that, but they greatly underestimated the reductions that have actually happened. For example, with solar energy, I, after my consultations, I wrote into all of the assumptions of the modelling an expectation of a fall in costs through technological improvement of, of a few percent per annum. Well, in practice, in the first decade after the report came out, uh, costs fell by 85 percent. 
Uh, so that's much more rapid than anticipated. And so uh, the costs of making the adjustment are very much lower than anticipated. And in fact, in some areas, including the shift to zero emission electricity using solar and wind and storage and demand management, the cost of new technologies are, are already lower than, uh, than new build old technologies. So we'll actually do better economically using new technologies. And in Australia's case, the advantages are even greater uh, because uh, we've got a greater relative abundance of solar and wind resources than any other country. Also a relative abundance of uh, capacity to, to capture uh, carbon in our landscape in soils and, and trees and therefore a capacity to produce uh, biomass for zero emissions industry. So all of these advantages mean that as the world as a whole goes to uh, zero emissions, as we must for going to uh, ever stop uh, increases in temperature, Australia will have a competitive advantage in industries that use a lot of energy. We should be the lowest cost country in the world. Now, as it turns out, uh, the pandemic has been associated with an acceleration of the global commitment to moving to zero emission. United Kingdom will host the uh, next United Nations conference uh, on climate change to be held in Glasgow next year. It was to be held in December this year, 2020, but COVID caused a postponement. Well, Britain has a commitment to uh, zero net emissions by 2050, and it's uh, going to use its hosting of the conference to push and pull other countries uh, to make not only make similar commitments, but to do things to get there. In this, it's following what the French president did, uh, who played such a role uh, in the Paris Agreement in December 2015. Just a, a month and a half ago, an address uh, electronically to the General Assembly of the United Nations. The Chinese President Xi Jinping made a commitment for China to uh, zero net emissions by 2060. Well, that's a very big step. China accounts now for about 28% of global emissions. It uses half the, the world's coal. It produces half the world's steel, which uh, is still made primarily from coal. It uses more than half the world's cement, which is very emission intensive. It uses Nearly, it produces and uses nearly half of the world's um, nitrogenous fertilizers, which produce a huge amount of emissions. So for China to go to zero emissions is a very big step. Of course, the world as a whole can't deal with this problem unless China does, but China's down announced just in September 2020, announced it's going to do so. Since then, Japan and Korea have formally committed themselves to uh, zero net emissions by 2050. Europe had already done so. And in the United States, uh, President Trump had always said that climate science wasn't to be taken seriously, just like medical science wasn't. So uh, he tried to get uh, America out of the international agreement made in Paris. But if he loses the election next week, as polls in the betting markets say he's likely to do, uh, then the new president will commit uh, the United States to zero net emissions by 2050, to zero emissions in electricity and energy by 2035. Uh, so the world is moving quite strongly in that direction. All of our biggest trading partners are heading quite strongly in that direction. Uh, and so uh, we're going to be quite quickly in a world in which uh, if Australia invests in energy using industries and the energy is zero emissions energy, there's going to be very strong demand for uh, our products. Australia is going to become the natural place to process Australian minerals for export to other countries committed to uh, zero uh, net emission. Uh, and 
without so there'll be very large opportunities for us to get a lot of the business investment in the the uh, trade exposed industries that we need for full employment with a reasonable amount of debt. We can get a lot of that investment and a lot of that growth in income from uh, the transition, accelerating the transition to zero emissions uh, energy. If you look at other things, there aren't so many uh, rich opportunities in other spheres. A lot of the traditional energy mining will not be the source of major new investments. Um, there's been some talk of a gas-led recovery, but it's hard to say, see uh, where the external demand is going to be for, for that or that matter where the Australian competitiveness uh, uh, is going to be. I think it's um, unrealistic to think that will make much of a contribution. Uh, a lot of our old, old manufacturing was wiped out by the lack of competitiveness during the uh, China resources boom. Uh, that's not going to come back, but there will be very strong economic reasons to uh, expand the zero emissions in industries, including metals processing, but a lot of others as the world uh, moves towards uh, a zero emissions economy. So we're fortunate that change in the, in the economic context of the movement to zero emissions coincides with the need for, for high levels of investment to uh, get us to uh, full employment with a reasonable amount of debt. It gives me great hope to hear you say that because it really felt like it could have gone either way on climate change um, during the pandemic. So that's um, really great to hear. So I'm just curious, as we look to recover, what is the big risk for our recovery? I think the biggest risk is that we won't change enough uh, and that we'll slip back into dog days. For example, the Treasurer said the priority will be increases in uh, employment, reduction of unemployment till unemployment falls below 6%, and then uh, we'll start reducing the deficit. Well, we don't have full employment at 6%. I said in the lectures and I say in the book that uh, you only know you're, you're at full employment when wages start to rise in the marketplace. That hasn't happened. We were nowhere near that in Australia before the, the pandemic. Even America, which got down to 3.5% unemployment, uh, wasn't experiencing strong inflation in the uh, labour market. So so it's a very big risk that, first of all, the monetary policy won't go far enough in matching the easy conditions of the rest of the world, and so our exchange rate will stay too high. And secondly, that our uh, expansion of uh, fiscal policy will end too soon. And thirdly, that uh, uh, we will be, that we will let the history of debilitating debate on climate change get in the road of taking advantage of the immense economic opportunity that lies before us in that area. And I suppose, fourthly, that we don't undertake reforms that could raise productivity and uh, give us rising living standards when we return to full employment. And fifthly, really underpinning all the rest, if there's a danger that we won't recognise it that we're not going to get productivity raising reforms, won't get acceptance of new ways of doing things uh, that can underpin rising incomes uh, unless and until uh, there's widespread acceptance in the Australian community that the benefits of economic growth are being shared equitably so that uh, equitable income distribution and policies to generate that become an integral part uh, of an economic program to uh, achieve full employment. Uh, and rising incomes. The pandemic recession is one of the most sudden shocks to the global economy we've seen in over a century. But if we're clever, we can recover from it more prosperous and more sustainable than before. Thanks to our guest, Professor Ross Garneau. You'll be able to read more about Ross's work and his pandemic recovery plan 
in his book that will be out in the new year. Subscribe to Econ19 for new episodes. For more insights on the economics of the coronavirus, head to our website, fbe.unimelb.edu.au forward slash econ19. Econ19 is recorded on Wurundjeri land. The podcast is produced by Seth Robinson and me, James Whitmore. The theme music comes from Premium Beat.